And this morning, we are beginning a new uh, exposition, a new series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so to begin, I'm going to uh, read just verse 1 to 2, and then uh, we'll do an overview and an introduction of this letter. So uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, just read along with me verse 1 to 2, and I'll pray, and then we will get into our message. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, we consider this letter, and, and there's, there's so much here, so much depth. And just as I, I read those first two verses, there's great depth there as well, just to see um, who wrote this, uh, Paul, inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit. But to know, just from the beginning, by his confession, that he was who he was and did what he did uh, according to your will, in a sense. Um, and he understood that. He understood your providence and your sovereignty, but also your grace and your peace uh, through Jesus Christ in salvation, but also in sanctification and in holiness and in guidance and uh, glories that have yet to be revealed to us, glories that we will just meditate upon all throughout eternity, glories which we pronounce and proclaim. So, Lord, as we consider this letter, this book, and as we go uh, throughout this series, we pray, and I pray, as, as Moses pray, prayed, Lord, show us your glory. Show us your glory in all your fullness, that we may see and that we may understand. And, Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that you would speak through me. For your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I, um, most of you were here when I uh, first came here about uh, almost a year and a half now. And um, when I first came here, I decided to uh, preach through Colossians. Uh, Paul's letter to Colossae, and there's several reasons for that, most, mostly because of the content. Um, I love that book. Uh, it's, it exalts Christ like almost no other letter, uh, and, and that's hard to say because um, much of the New Testament and every verse and passage exalts Christ or points to Christ, um, but I wanted to begin with, <clears throat> with Colossians. Um, because not only does it exalt Christ and it, it answers um, and, and confronts errors concerning Jesus Christ, but it also speaks of the church and, and talks about the church. And so I, I really wanted to start with that. And then um, I don't know if many of you know this, but I don't think too far ahead in terms of preaching schedule. I just think of the next book. And even and then I just work through that. And then every once in a while I think of, and even for holidays, I really don't 
do think too much. I think a topical, and, and um, if I'm here long enough, I'll certainly do topical messages, but I just want to preach through books. And so I just pick a book, and then I go to the next passage and the next passage and the next passage. And, and, and then when I get towards about halfway through that book, I think of the next book. And so I don't think too far ahead. But nonetheless, I, I started with Colossians, and because I preached through Colossians, that meant I, I, I felt compelled to preach Philemon as well because those two letters went together to the same place, and, and Philemon talks about forgiveness, an aspect of our Christianity and our churches, the church life that's so vital to us and vital to our, our relationships and our fellowship. And then I figure, well, maybe I'll do Philippians as well because I want to do something Christ-exalting that would also speak to things about the church. And by the time I got to Philippians, I figure, well, I might as well finish all the prison letters. So we remain with Paul in prison. Um, Paul, uh, he wrote four letters from prison. His, um, in a sense, uh, probably say his his second imprisonment, though, because he was in prison first in, in Caesarea um, in Israel, and then he went to Rome where he writes here <clears throat> while he's on house arrest, and then he would be in prison later where he would be martyred. And so this is uh, <clears throat> the last of his uh, prison epistles that, or prison letters that I will be preaching through, but I believe and many believe that it was written first. And uh, so that's my just my reasoning um, behind uh, uh, choosing this letter. But also, it is it's a great letter. It has such great depth concerning uh, Jesus Christ, salvation, and the church. In fact, um, several uh, pastors, theologians, authors have have written, had commented, spoken about the greatness of Ephesians. Um, in this letter, one author called it the greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most rel- relevant of Paul's letters. Another called it the crown of St. Paul's writings. Uh, John Chrysostom, um, uh, he was a, uh, one of the um, ancient, uh, I guess, church fathers or later a, a profound uh, preacher. He said that Ephesians is the most masterful book in the New Testament because in it, Paul has the forth- forcefulness to say with clarity what the rest of the New Testament only alludes to. And I think he, he's um, probably elaborating a bit there um, he, because uh, the New Testament is clear in other places on, on what um, Ephesians says, but there is a sense where Ephesians does, Paul does write with a clarity concerning the church. There's some deeper truths in here, which we will see. I, I, I like what um, James Montgomery Boyce wrote in his commentary about this letter. He said this, um, he said, I want to begin by emphasizing the simple clarity of this letter. If Ephesians is profound, it is so not, it is so not for the, the mysterious nature of its unfathomable deep secrets, but for the clear way it presents the most basic Christian truths. There is nothing in Ephesians that is not taught elsewhere. He goes on uh, to quote B.F. Westcott. He said, in his unfinished but valuable exposition of this letter, B.F. Westcott included an appendix in which he discussed 
the letter's distinct doctrines. He found 27 of them running from God the Father, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity through the will of God, the world and creation, the unseen world, angels, evil powers, and the devil to the church, the communion of saints, saints, the sacraments, and the Christian ministry. Not one of these doctrines is unique to Ephesians. They are just basic Christianity. And so there's basic Christianity, basic church life, what the church is, how we are to live, um, where we come from, who we are, what we are called to do. And just a bit of background to, for this letter, as some of you know, and some of you know a little bit more than others, uh, as um, most of us uh, have differing levels of understanding, knowledge, maturity, um, which isn't wrong, it's just the way it is. But nonetheless, we, some of you know this was written to the city of Ephesus. Um, this was a major ancient city in the Greco-Roman world. It was um, a city uh, uh, near the coast. It had a harbor um, uh, in modern-day Turkey. It was uh, a place which uh, had uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, this, this great temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis, uh, depending on uh, whether you're looking at the Greek perspective or the Roman perspective. Um, it was the same goddess, uh, just different names. Um, and this temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was, it was probably one and a half times the size of a football field. It was large. Uh, 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 said uh, one author said it was four times the size of the Greek Parthenon, um, and it housed this uh, statue of the goddess, which they believe to have come down from heaven. And uh, what's interesting is is in that day and age, uh, many of the temples, which I'll, I'll elaborate on a little bit later, um, were not just uh, temples in, in terms of the pagan religion, but they are also banking institutions. And so um, one author writes that this temple was a depository for huge amounts of treasure and was, in effect, the Bank of Asia. It, it was served by hundreds of priestesses of Diana, who were also temple prostitutes. Uh, it, it was the main attraction to Ephesus, but Ephesus was also a, a, a city of commerce and trade. And so there is a sense that, that um, Paul's letter to Ephesus as well as his ministry to Ephesus was strategic. He did not plant the church. The gospel was first brought there by Priscilla and Aquila, um, who were, in a sense, uh, left there by Paul on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 18. And then Paul would later establish and, and ground this church in his third missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts 19. And then um, he pastored it for about three years. Uh, we can read in Acts that he, um, in a sense, rented a hall, the Hall of Tyrannus, which became, in a sense, the, the first seminary where he taught um, in the middle of that, the afternoon and rented this place um, uh, so that he could teach for about five hours a day and train people for ministry, and so that he would later say, so that the whole world has, in a sense, heard the gospel or a whole region because of the men he trained up and sent out from there. Later, he would leave his protege, Timothy, to pastor there for about a year and a half. And then um, the last word we hear about it is a sad word in Revelation that the 
church of Ephesus, uh, Jesus, in a sense, rebukes them because though they were faithful in their doctrine, they had lost their first love. And so there's, there's so much we can learn from this church and, and by way of this letter. But for this morning, my goal is to provide both an introduction and an overview of Ephesians so that you can understand it from a broad perspective. We'll be flipping back and forth uh, in the pages. We'll be in this letter, but I want to draw some things out, some themes, and, and I want you to understand it from a broad perspective so that we won't miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, uh, as we go through this letter verse by verse over the coming weeks and months. And as we... Um, Look at this letter and this introduction. I'm not um, uh, expositing verse 1 and 2, so to speak, but the, the, just doing an overview of the whole book. But, um, and, and there's different ways people have outlined it, many similar ways. But for this morning's message, I'm going to outline it in three points. And I just those three points, I just want you to know that understanding Paul's letter to the Ephesians is as easy as one, two, three. And that's our outline. One, two, three. One glorious mystery, two distinct parts, and three key themes. That's how we're going to look at this letter this morning as we look at a broad overview of this letter. First, one glorious mystery. One glorious mystery, a, a mystery which has been revealed by, by God, from God, through Paul to his people, and, and that's the, just the, the nature of, uh, of the Bible and, and redemptive history, that, that God reveals himself, condescends to mankind, and, and shows who he is to sinful man, and calls sinful man to himself. And here in this letter, there's, there's five times in which Paul uses the word mystery, which is, um, which is significant. Um, he does use a word in other letters, but there's a significant aspect uh, to this letter in, in this mystery, a mystery which has been revealed and a mystery which concerns three things. But as you go through uh, your Bible reading, and you see this particularly more in the New Testament letters, in the, the epistles, that you want to, just a hermeneutical principle, or a principle of Bible interpretation, that when you read a Bible book, you want to look for a purpose statement or the reason for which the, the letter was written or that book was written. And sometimes it's hard to find. Um, and, and so sometimes it's clear, um, like uh, John writes in 1 John at the, at, or at, the, at the end of his gospel, um, he writes, uh, these things were written so that you may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in him may have eternal life. And then also in his letter, 1 John, he, he says, this, this, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life, that, that purpose statement. Well, there's a sense that as Paul writes this letter, the purpose is in a sense uh, mainly in chapter 3 as he talks about this mystery, this mystery that is revealed. And his mystery uh, concerning three things. Uh, we see it primarily in chapter 3, but we, we see it uh, first come up in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 1. As he talks about the, the will of God. 
And so this, the, the first thing this mystery concerns, it is one glorious mystery, but it concerns several things. And the first thing is God's will. God's will in regard to redemptive history, God's will in regard to the reconciliation of all things, not just uh, uh, his people and sinful man, but the reconciliation of all things and all things in regard to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, uh, he says, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth in him. The, this uh, first aspect of this glorious mystery is it is part of God's will, and God's will in regard to redemptive history, uh, to the reconciliation of all things, and primarily to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. His will ultimately focuses on Jesus Christ and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that he came to uh, redeem a people for himself as a gift to the Father, and he will redeem not only a people and not only a kingdom, but all of creation, and he will one day rule and reign over that creation. We get a window into that mystery, was, which was not as clearly revealed in times past to the Old Testament prophets and, and saints, but is more clearly revealed um, later, and specifically through the apostles and here. And as we, another principle uh, of Bible interpretation, as we read through the Bible, there's this principle of progressive revelation that, you know, as most of us read a book, we start from the beginning to the end. But sometimes the Bible's so big that we start in the middle. And it's not entirely wrong, but we, if you really want to understand the Bible, you have to understand the whole Bible. And from beginning to end, it takes, as many pe preachers have said before, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so we get off track if we um, reinterpret passages uh, in the past from passages in the future. There's this revelation progresses, and as it progresses, God unfolds his will and his desire and his plan for redemptive history, and particularly here in Ephesians, his will concerning Jesus Christ. But second, the second aspect of this glorious mystery is Christ Jesus. And I say that specifically, Christ Jesus. Uh, most, uh, most often we're, we're familiar, we talk about Jesus, um, either just Jesus or Jesus Christ. And we hear that name and, and sometimes that name is used uh, in vain to blaspheme him. Um, but usually when you talk about Jesus, it's Jesus or Jesus Christ. It, it's, it, we don't often hear Christ Jesus except in the Bible. Um, uh, you know, and sometimes preachers, teachers will talk. And there's a reason why um, there's that word order. Because, uh, you know, um, contrary to some opinions, uh, Christ is not his last name. It's not his last name. It's his title. His title, it's uh, Christos in the Greek. Uh, it comes from uh, the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, which means anointed, the anointed one, God's anointed one, anointed king, but also anointed as uh, ruler, as uh, 
uh, sovereign as the one who would come to restore all things. He is the anointed one, Christ Jesus. And, and Jesus, uh, also uh, this Greek uh, uh, translation of Joshua or uh, Yeshua from the, the Hebrew, which means Yahweh saves or God saves. And it's why his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Also, that's why, in a sense, uh, Joshua, there's a sense where he was uh, somewhat of a redeemer as well. But Christ is the perfect and final redeemer and savior. And he is Christ Jesus. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is God's anointed one. And this glorious mystery in Ephesians centers on Christ Jesus, centers on him regarding his gospel and gospel ministry. As Paul speaks in, in, in chapter 3, he says, For this reason, also uh, pointing to, in a sense, a purpose statement, for this reason why he, uh, he uh, has written to them, why he serves them, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... If indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles our fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. And then he goes on, he talks about uh, the riches of Christ and the riches of this glory, of this gospel, uh, this glorious mystery concerning Christ Jesus, who he is, uh, what he came to do, this, this mystery that which was only hinted at in the Old Testament. Uh, it was in many places clear, um, but not clear enough so that uh, everybody would get it, the Old Testament saying that they, they confused, in a sense, his uh, first coming with his second coming. But there's also a sense that they weren't really seeking God, and so that's why they didn't see him. But there is, in a sense, this mystery is revealed concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the Anointed One, concerning the Messiah, and also regarding uh, Paul's, his gospel and gospel ministry, as Paul even alludes here, of the stewardship of God's grace given to him for you, uh, Ephesians and other believers, to make known this mystery. And he speaks of this stewardship of, of gospel ministry in other places. In 1 Corinthians 4, he speaks about himself being a steward of the mysteries of God or the oracles of God, that he has been given this stewardship of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. But this mystery uh, concerning Christ Jesus, it not only regards his gospel and who he is and gospel ministry, but it also regards the, the people of God and the promises of God. Uh, of him uh, uh, calling a people to himself from all peoples, not just the Jews, but of Gentiles. Uh, uh, he is the Savior for the whole world, that, that 
all peoples are called to come and to repent and to believe and to, to receive salvation through him. But, but not just uh, uh, the gospel and his uh, uh, role as savior and ruler, but also uh, th- this mystery regards his riches within his church. These riches, which, which uh, uh, Paul speaks about in, in, in verse 8 and, and, and uh, following of chapter 3, he says, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. These great riches, these spiritual riches. And there might be somewhat of a metaphor here. As I spoke about just Ephesus and the temple being the main attraction to Ephesus and made it the city that it was. And that temple was a depository for riches, for treasures. There was a bank also in a sense. And so merchants, uh, traders, um, even uh, the Roman government would uh, use that temple as a bank. And so there was a sense that it stored riches and, and, and uh, physical riches. But from the pagan perspective, they uh, pictured uh, spiritual riches as well. But here, Paul talks about unfathomable riches, true riches of Jesus Christ in Christ, which are, in a sense, stored within or stewarded within the church. That the church as a steward of the gospel and him as a steward of the gospel, a depository of the gospel, of the knowledge of God, we are, in a sense, uh, somewhat of the storehouses of the riches of Christ or, or a place where people can come and learn and hear about the riches of Jesus Christ and the riches of God. And so this mystery, this glorious mystery, it concerns God's will, it concerns Christ Jesus, but it also concerns Christ and his church. There's this, this next verse, and we see this unfolding here. And it's almost just uh, parenthetical. As Paul would later talk about relationships and the relationship between wives and husbands, he says this interesting, in, this interesting thing in, in verse 32 of chapter 5. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And that's in the context of him talking about a man and his wife and a wife and her husband and how they are to relate to one another and how they are to... Uh, uh, serve one another, and that this relationship is a picture of this mystery of the relationship between Christ and his church, of his sacrificial love for his church. As we read in verse 25 of chapter 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it but also of his sanctifying love for his church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And then of his sustaining love for his church, that he might 
present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also to, also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And so we see a part of this glorious mystery concerning Christ and his church here in this context of Paul speaking about husbands and wives and this relationship between Jesus Christ and his church of his sacrificial love for his church, his sanctifying love for his church, his sustaining love for his church, but also of his unifying love for his church. And I tried to find another S word, but symbiotic doesn't quite get it. So unifying love for his church because he calls us to be one with him. And the thing about the church and Jesus is, is that the, the church is instituted by Christ through him. And, and because of that, the church is to be all about Jesus because Jesus is all about his church and particularly in glorifying uh, God through his church. Was, uh, not too long ago, we had a, a missionary here and uh, he spoke about God's plan for the world for the ages it, it, it centers on his church. It's all about the church. This is, it, it, it's not that we are so special in and of ourselves, but God has made us special through his sacrificial love for us, through uh, sending Jesus Christ to uh, redeem us, to die for us. And his work through us in redeeming a people for himself. And also, that is where redemption begins and it flows out towards the rest of creation as he will one day return to redeem all of creation and then he will rule and reign over it. But we are stewards of this glorious mystery. The second part or the second aspect of uh this letter I want you to see, which um, for many of you it's clear, is the two distinct parts. This letter, as some of Paul's letters are similar in these two distinct parts, is part of his writing style, but also uh, some of the other apostles have a similar writing style. Um, but we see it most clearly here in his letter to Ephesians that this letter has two distinct parts. Um, and it's divided evenly, uh, uh, chapter 1 to the end of chapter 3. And then uh, chapter 4, we see this great therefore as he turns the corner uh, towards application. Then we have chapter 4 towards the end of chapter 6. So we have 1 to 3 and then 4 to 6, these two distinct parts. And the two, two uh, aspects of these parts, these distinct parts, are of doctrine and duties, of uh, theology and then uh, 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 application or, or uh, the, the doctrine aspect, which concerns our theology and our thinking. And then the duties, which concern our walk and our living. And, and you, can't, you can't live out or you can't practice what you don't know. And so in the Christian life, there's these two uh, aspects of doctrine and duties or uh, theology and living. We, we, we need to, to know about God, but then we need to uh, live out what we know. And, and if you, uh, 
you get off balance, then, then uh, you, you can fall into a ditch um, in many ways. But, um, you know, some people, they, don't, they, they just don't like to study. Uh, they're just not, they're, they're never much of a student. They, they just like to work with their hands or whatever. Studying is hard for them. And so they, they can uh, neglect doctrine in their Christian life. And, and other people, they, they, that's all they want to do is just lock them up in a library and they study all day and they, they don't really, they're, they're just weird and awkward. <laughs> and uh, so, and, and, and that, that, uh, that characterizes some of us. And, and I know myself, I, there's weirdness in me. Um, but uh, we, we need a balance of where we do need to study, but then we need to live that out and interact with others and be salt and light. And so there's this balance. And, and as one um, author has written and, and others have said, everyone is a theologian. Whether you consider your, yourself one or not, everyone is a theologian because everybody has thoughts about God. And this is true even of the atheist. They have thoughts about God. They don't believe him, but they have thoughts about him. And in a sense, the Bible says they do believe him. They just suppress that truth and unrighteousness as they deny him. But everybody has thoughts about God. So everybody is a theologian. It's just whether or not you're a good one or not. Whether or not you're, you're de determining your theology and your doctrine from the word of God or just your own opinions. And so it's important. Doctrine is important. And this, this first half of Ephesians is full of doctrine. And it starts first with this doctrine concerning uh, the, the Trinity, the Godhead, and redemption in, in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is just a view, uh, so to speak, into uh, the heavenly throne room as we get uh, some sort of view into the interactions between uh, the Godhead and, and, and concerns of redemption and redemptive history and, and salvation. And then we see, see uh, uh, the doctrine concerning the, the blessings in Christ, uh, verse 15 to 23 of chapter 1. Then we see doctrine concerning the salvation of sinners in chapter 2. As many of you know and, and have used these passages, these verses to evangelize the loss uh, in the beginning of chapter 2. I mean, uh, verses 8 and 9 was instrumental in my own salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And this section uh, speaks of that rich doctrine concerning the salvation of sinners, but there's also this doctrine in this first half concerning the church. As Paul will talk about how God saves sinners and how he redeems them and how he brings them into his church. And then, then Paul talks about this glorious doctrine concerning the church in chapter 3. And doctrine is important, as I explained, because you can't live out, you can't practice what you don't know. And, so, and uh, you know, we can get off balance, and, uh, but... Um, we read, uh, there's this balance, this one man in the Bible who has just, uh, in a sense, uh, is an example of this balance, and that is Ezra. As we read about Ezra in the Old Testament, in, in Ezra 7.10, as the, he, this uh, post-exilic uh, priest, that he comes 
He comes back with the, the, the Jews from their Babylonian exile, and he helps to establish them once again in uh, their worship. And it says in Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it, and to teach his statute and judgment in Israel. He, he studied his law, he studied the word of God first for himself, so that he could then practice it, um, before he even sought out to teach others. There's an order here. We study the Word of God to know God, to understand God, but then to live out that Word and those commands which God uh, calls us to do. And, and then we, we teach others to do likewise. And so this is, in a sense, what Paul takes this, this model as he explains this doctrine to the Ephesians of, of salvation, of God, of the church, all these rich doctrines. And then he gets to chapter 4 and he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And you can't walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called if you do not know the calling. If you don't understand the calling. So he starts with this uh, explaining the calling. And then he tells them, gets the second point of duties. Uh, this doctrine. And then the second part, uh, second distinct part, duties of our walk, of our living. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To walk in light of our calling. This rich calling of being believers. Of being a new creation in Christ Jesus. Being redeemed. Being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. But also to walk in light of uh, uh, just being a new creation. Chapter 4, verse 17 to 32. And then to walk in light of our God in chapter 5, and verse 1 to chapter 6 and verse 9. And then finally he ends by telling us how to walk in light of our enemies. That we live on a spiritual battlefield and we do have enemies. And we are to walk in light of that and to... Uh, use the resources which God has provided for us to walk effectively. In his letter to the early church, uh, many believe it was uh, the first letter in the, the New Testament. Um, uh, I, I, believe, I, I don't believe that, but uh, I don't have strong reasoning. Uh, well, I kind of do, but that's a whole other subject. But nonetheless, uh, James is known as the first letter in the New Testament. And he writes, in a sense, James is, it's a hard-hitting letter. And one of the, these things, one of these hard-hitting lessons and, and these confronting uh, 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 lessons that he gives to the, the uh, early believers is this. In, in James 1.22, he says, Become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. So doctrine and the knowledge of God does not just end there. It has to be worked out in our lives and, and putting it into practice and doing it. But we need to know before we do. Um, 
And so Paul uh, is just almost masterful. We see this, these two distinct parts of doctrine and duties. And so as we look at this whole letter, we see one glorious mystery, two distinct parts, and three key themes. Three key themes. That's the last point I want to draw. I want you to see this. And uh, in this point, there's three key themes. And so we, we might be flipping back and forth a couple times or at least just note the verse references and, and, and kind of follow along. And, and if you want, you can listen to the message later and, and, and pull out these verse references. But I remember in, in seminary as I was uh, towards the end, there was this class. Um, one of the almost like a capstone class. That was the, the, the point of this class. It was called ordination prep or ordination pre- preparation. It was to synthesize everything you learned and, and to, in a sense, uh, uh, take you through the gauntlet in testing you to make sure you really learned everything over the past three, four, five years or however long it took you to get through this course. Uh, of instruction in seminary and to uh, in a sense the goal was to make sure you you knew the whole bible in terms of its content and its doctrine and uh, so in in one of the tests was um, to be able to uh, not only uh, understand each book of the bible um, the name its order why it was written who it was written to but um many of the key chapters and to understand the chapters and what this chapter meant. And and then in understanding, compiling this information, there was uh, these study sheets uh, of um, many who would compile of one word description of books of the Bible. That they would just have one word description. And and many of them were dead on. Some of them were a little bit off. Uh, And and even as you look through, uh, either you might see it in a study Bible or other commentaries or hear from other preachers as they preach on uh, uh, Bible books and particularly even Ephesians. And they'll talk about the purpose of the book. And, And one of the main purposes that we see is calling. And so that was one of those one-word descriptors uh, that could compile all of uh, 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 the teaching uh, of a major theme in calling, in Ephesians calling. And this begins in, in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, in which we see, So that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The calling, the calling of uh, not only believers, but of the church, of calling out of the world and into the church. And this is where, in a sense, we get the name church, this Greek term, ekklesia, which means uh, called out or called out of, called out ones could be literally the, the, the name of the church, that we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, called out of the kingdom of darkness into the, the kingdom of his son, called out of sinful rebellion into holy unity with God and with one another, called out of Adam into Christ as the second Adam, the perfect man, that we have this glorious calling as believers and as the church. And Paul lays this out masterfully in Ephesians in chapter 1, but also in uh, uh, chapter 4 we read this distinctly as he calls us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. 
And in verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Ephesians is about this calling as believers and as a church. But second, the, the second theme, which is also, uh, you see many authors, either in commentaries or preachers, that it almost seems as if they're wrestling between these two themes. On one hand, calling, but then on the other hand, this other one-word descriptor, position. And many of them are similar, calling and position. And, and the, the reason why they struggle with, or, or it seems like they struggle, uh, because I've even, even seen one author in, in different places, he says calling, and then another place it says position. Because throughout this letter, we see these terms in him or in Christ. And we see that in many of the other uh, uh New Testament epistles in Christ. We, we are, some of us even have that as a tagline on like our letters in Christ as a, kind of a, a postscript or, or whatever, a, a, just a salutation in Christ, in him. And, and it's true, we, we are in him. And Paul uses it several times, uh, either directly 12, 13, or, uh, or indirectly even more either in him or in Christ. And I just want to, in a sense, uh, go through this list, so to speak, and just rattle this off and, and follow along if you, you can. Um, uh, but he, he begins, our position in, in Christ is this, that our spiritual resources and blessings are in Christ. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, our election, our predestination is in him. And in chapter 1, in verse 4, and verse 11, our redemption in him. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, our knowledge of God's plans and purposes in Christ. Uh, verse 9 to 10 of chapter 1, our eternal security and sealing by the Holy Spirit in him, verses 13 to 14 of chapter 1, our eternal life is in him. And in him alone, in, in chapter 2 and verses 5 to 6, our recreation, that we have been recreated in Christ for good works, which God had prepared beforehand in chapter 2 and verse 10. And then this part of this glorious mystery of our union with Israel in Christ, that we are the, the, those who are far off, Gentiles, which I believe that's most of us here, those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have brought in, been brought near to be one with, uh, with uh, his people, and we are his people grafted in, as he would say in Romans he speaks about that in chapter 2. And then our inheritance. Because we are one, we, we have this inheritance in the covenant promises. All those Old Testament covenant promises. That covenant with Abraham. That he would bless Abraham. Make him the father of a multitude of nations. And give him land promises. Those promises are ours in Christ. Those covenant promises to David. And, and the, the new covenant. That we, that's part of our inheritance in, in Christ. And, and Paul speaks about that in chapter 3 and verse 6. Our spiritual growth in Christ in chapter 4 and verses 15 to 16. Our forgiveness and the model of forgiveness in Christ in, in verse 32 of chapter 5. That we are to be forgiving. And he talks about this as, as in a sense, a uh, the love of a husband towards wife, uh, uh, just as Christ uh, uh, forgave us. And then our light, or our holiness, or our purity in the Lord in uh, 
chapter uh, 5 and verse 8. Just on the fly, I made a mistake. That was the last one was chapter 4, verse 32. Um, our forgiveness and model of forgiveness in Christ. And then finally, the one thing that he finishes off with in this uh, sense of position in him, in Christ, is our strength for spiritual warfare in the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 6, that finally be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. This sense of as he uh, explains just the, the beauty of this glorious mystery and the calling and the position of believers in Christ and in the church, he, he, he finishes off this letter which with uh, our resources in Christ and the strength which we have available to us to uh, uh, effectively wage the spiritual warfare that, that wages all around us. And, and yes, this is figurative language, but nonetheless, uh, it is true that we live on a spiritual battlefield. And so we see these two key themes of calling and position, but there's one theme which... Um, I haven't really seen too many places, and so, uh, but I see it here um, in Ephesians, all throughout Ephesians. I see it probably most clearly as the most clear theme, which is related to calling and position. It's, it's just probably just because I, I like to use the thesaurus, the which is my uh, favorite dinosaur. Um, so uh, uh, I go to a thesaurus often to prepare my messages and my lessons, and so I look for uh, synonyms. Um, but one theme I see woven all throughout uh, Ephesians is this theme of relationship, of relationship. And, and as you think calling, you think position, you see, think of all these doctrines, all these practices, all these great truths. I, I want you to just see this theme of relationship. That is woven all throughout. It begins in the first chapter. This relationship of the three persons of the Trinity in redemption. In chapter 1 and verse 3 to 23. as It speaks of God the Father choosing us. And sending Christ to redeem us. And the Holy Spirit's work. And their interactions with one another and with us. We see the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity in redemption in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see the relationship of unredeemed sinners and Satan in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, that, that all of us were dead in our transgressions and sins we, we, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You know, you, you hear this, uh, sometimes you hear unbelievers say this or, or uh, well-meaning believers who, who just don't know better that, well, we're all God's children. The Bible says, uh, says uh, differently that we are born into this world children of Satan, children of the devil, sons of disobedience, which is why we need to be born again made new, recreated, drawn into God's kingdom. There needs to be this, this miracle of regeneration because before Christ we were all dead. And, and Paul paints this. He shows this relationship of unredeemed sinners and Satan in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. And then he goes on, he shows the relationship of the Father and believers through Christ in salvation um, from verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2 where he starts with this uh, great uh, 
uh, uh, conjunction or, or, or transition when he says, but God. But God, and as my counseling professor said, and he had as a sign in his home, there's these two words, but God. He's like, there has to be a but God in your life. And there's multiple, that I was going this way, but God. And then not even in salvation, but in your growth as a believer, in your sanctification. I was struggling with the sin, struggling with the sin, but God came and he assisted me and he helped me and I gained victory or, or I, I was struggling with this decision, but God, by his providence, directed me. There has to be a but God and, and there is a but God in our salvation, in our sanctification, because there is this relationship of the Father and believers through Christ and salvation. And then the next relationship we see, we see this relationship of Gentiles and Jews, that were once at enmity with one another, but now are reconciled through Christ. In verses 11 to 22 of chapter 2, this relationship that those who were far off have been brought near. But as he says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, creating one new man, making peace through the blood of his cross. This relationship of Gentiles and Jews reconciled through Christ. And then next we see the relationship of God and his ministers in the stewardship of his, relation, his revelation as Paul even attests to in chapter 3 and then beginning verse 1 and then down all the way to uh, verse 10 as he unfolds this mystery, uh, this glorious mystery concerning Jesus Christ, concerning salvation, concerning his church. And he says that, that he is a steward. There's a sense of relationship between uh, him and God as his minister, as a steward of his revelation. And, and others would say as well, not only a steward, but a slave to the master to do only what he tells us to do and, and to, to teach only what he tells us to teach through his word that I as a minister and am a steward and a slave of Jesus Christ and I am bound by his word and by his law to do what he tells me and there is a relationship there. And then we see next the relationship of God and his church and prayer, power, knowledge, and growth. And the rest of chapter 3 and verse 11 to 21 is as Paul uh, prays. He says, because of this glorious mystery and because of my stewardship and because of what everything that God is doing through Jesus Christ in the church, I bow my knees before the, the Father and from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is what Paul prays for. This is, in a sense, uh, the center part of this whole uh, 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 letter as he talks about this relationship of God and his church through prayer, through uh, spiritual power, through knowledge, through growth. And then he turns uh, the corner and gets into more of uh, uh, duties, but he continues in a sense of explaining, uh, in a sense, uh, this, we see this relationship. 
And in several relationships, uh, the relationship of the Trinity and the church in its call to holiness and unity in in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. And we see uh, how the Spirit uh, is, we are called to uh, be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that there is one body and one Spirit. And we see uh, all three members of the Trinity here, the Father, the Spirit, the Jesus Christ, that are all working together in the church, this relationship with the church in its call to holiness and unity. Next, we see this relationship of Christ and the church in spiritual gifts and offices. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 7 to 11, as we see that Jesus Christ, in ascending on high, uh, fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy, he led captive a host of captives, us, and he gave gifts to men. That he dispensed spiritual gifts, and not just spiritual gifts, but offices within his church. And he lists these offices of beginning with apostles and prophets, which now there are no more. There are no more apostles and prophets. Anybody who calls them such, run from them. Uh, Don't listen to them. Um, That ended with the New Testament age. But nonetheless, he has, there are further offices of evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The the sense of of, uh, God, this relationship of Christ with his church in dispensing spiritual gifts and offices within within this church so that the church would be built up. And then flowing from that, we see the relationships in the church in the exercise of spiritual gifts and service to one another. Verses 11 to 16, as we are called to, in a sense, uh, work out our salvation, called to uh, exercise our giftings within the context of the church so that we all grow. There's this, this concept or this, this misconception, rather, that... Um, that we grow primarily through uh, the pastors or the ministers or the leaders' uh, uh, leadership and teaching. Um, but no, our, our spiritual growth isn't just from, from uh, the teaching from the pulpit or uh, Sunday school. or it, it's, it's from the exercise of all our gifts. And as I spoke in Sunday school this morning, sometimes we don't know exactly our giftings. Uh, the church will let us know, but nonetheless, in just being present, if you are a true believer, you contribute to the body growing in your presence, in your just being there, because you're an encouragement to one another, but you're also uh, there for others to exercise their gifts um, with you, their gifts of encouragement and love and fellowship. And so we're built up in in being one with one another in our exercise of spiritual gifts and service. This next relationship we see is a relationship of believers with the world and their old life in the pursuit of holiness. In verse 17 to 24 of chapter 4 is we are called to put off the old man and put on the new and called uh, to to, uh, holiness. And then we see that relationship further expounded upon amongst believers, a relationship amongst believers in their pursuit of holiness. And later in chapter 5, we see the relationship of believers with sin, with foolishness, with darkness, with light and wisdom as we're called to be imitators of God, to walk in love, to walk in light, to uh, be, uh, be careful how we walk, not as unwise but as wise, redeeming the time. 
And then we get into more practical relationships, or the relationship of husbands and wives, of Christ and his church in 5 and verse 22 to 33, and then the relationship of children and parents in the first four verses of chapter 6. And then we get into this relationship of slaves and masters, which for most of us, uh, we don't see it that way, or some, some uh, because we're just not in the context of slavery. But in that day and age, slavery was everywhere. It was, it was just right or wrong, good or evil, it was a reality. And so Paul tells them, he instructs them how to live in light of that reality, how to live in a way which honors God. But even in our own day and age, we can take this as uh, employee and employer because it's, it's similar. And, and honestly, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, there's many uh, slaves who were better off than free men because they had a good master. And that's what it all hinged upon, whether or not their master was honoring God. And we have a master. And all the whole New Testament speaks about us as slaves to our master. And so we see this relationship of slaves and masters and how it's supposed to work out. And then next, we see the relationship of believers and the enemies of God. In verses 10 to 18 of chapter 6. And then finally, we see the relationship amongst believers in the midst of spiritual war. That we are to pray for one another. We are to serve one another. We are to help one another as Paul ends this letter. So all throughout this letter, we see these one glorious mystery of Christ and his church, of God's will through Christ Jesus, of salvation. And we see these two distinct parts of doctrine and duties. And we see these three key themes of calling, of position, and of relationship. But as we see uh, relationship woven all throughout this, and, and our relationship with God, and, and all the relationships listed here, we see it's a significant theme here, but just as it is probably the most significant theme in Ephesians, the most significant thing about you is your relationship with God, and specifically your relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of you, um, many believers, you may be familiar with the phrase, uh, it's not about religion, but a relationship. And there's, there's quite a bit of truth to that. Um, that was used in in. in much evangelism in the past uh, few decades, and it's still used a bit today. But I just want to let you know and remind you, some of you know this, but uh, everyone, every single person on the planet has a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just whether or not that's a good one. Because for most of you here, he is your Savior, he is your Lord. But for others, he is your judge. And he will judge you. And it says in Revelation 14 that, that uh, those in hell, in torment, are, are being tormented and judged in the sight of the Lamb. God has given all judgment to the Son. And so every person, every single person, every human being has a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just whether or not that's a good one. 
It's whether or not he's your savior and he's your Lord and he's your master and he's the one you love and the one you want to worship or that he's the one you hate, he's the one you blaspheme, he's the one you reject, he's the one you refuse to rule and reign over you and he will one day rule and reign over all peoples. It's just some he will do as a gracious, loving masters and others he will do with a rod of iron as he breaks your knees so that you will bow in confession and confess him as Lord. But if he is not your Savior, if he is not your Lord, there is this promise, this great glorious mystery, this provision that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can have salvation. There is forgiveness with God. As uh, Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is the greatest master and he longs to save sinners. So if you're unsure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, call upon him. And if your relationship is not what it should be, then you should also repent and search the scriptures and get back on track and strive for holiness. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great letter and and these great truths which are contained therein. Lord, as we uh, go through this letter, and and even um, in our private devotions, whether we read this letter or another aspect of your word, another chapter, another verse, another book, Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that you would guide us, that you would um, illuminate our minds, help us to understand, help us to remember, and help us to apply these great truths to our lives, that you may be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.